Roger, I was super excited to have you on the episode, uh, and we're recording, and at any point you can say, cut this out, and we will. Um, <laughs> I was super excited to have you on here just because of our, you know, our, our two-hour breakfast typically take four hours, and we're standing outside talking for another half an hour, 45 minutes, and it's only the reality of life that pulls us away from our conversations, mm-hmm. <laughs> talking about, yeah, I guess a lot of it really is psychology. And so I kind of hoped you might take us a little bit through your career um, with us interrupting unceremoniously. And uh, we might ask you a little bit about, you know, uh, how you developed your your feel, your understanding for psychology, and including, you know, uh, you might start your career back at the horse track. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that's actually a really good spot. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I agree. I mean, I think psychology is a large part of... Uh, how you look at markets and the world. Um, so, yeah, my my early exposure to, I guess, the first market was a racetrack. Um, you know, my, my family was involved in horse racing. I spent too much time at a horse track as a kid. Um, I can remember reading the racing form before I read a lot of other things. Uh, and and so I think the exposure to, to that um, a lot of card playing, probably overexposed to games of chance as a child. Uh, but I think it's interesting because it does shape your thinking. It shapes your perspective about behavior, risk management. Um, so I think those things were, were critical. Um, so let me just, I guess, maybe skip up from childhood to Early education, early exposure no, no. to go, go uh, back to the track. Yeah, yeah stay with yeah, it. Yeah, no, go back to the track. Okay. One okay. of the things you were telling me about one time that we only really touched on was um, how how you saw betters um, for so long, and there was only really you know a couple successful ones, and you know, yeah, you know, seven or eight yeah, years that's... later, you finally have this epiphany. I mean, take us through that. Yeah, that's 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 pretty interesting. So, you know. My father owned a racetrack in Kentucky, and I spent some summers there. And, you know, I, I had a sense for numbers, gambling, statistics, odds, probability. I played a lot of cards as a kid. So it was something I had some feel for. And, you know, you spend an entire summer at the track, and you kind of see all kinds of people. Um, you see the guy that's there every day betting every race. And I came across a couple of guys that were professional gamblers. And that experience, I think, kind of shaped my thinking about how to think about things in terms of advantages and edges. So these guys were pretty statistically oriented. Um, They did a lot of calculations, came to the track prepared, and would maybe better race, maybe two, sometimes not a bit a race at all throughout the day. Sometimes come to the track every day, spend every day there and bet two or three races a week. Mm-hmm. And as I got to know them and kind of understand their thinking, I started to see that the whole game is stacking the odds in your favor, waiting for the right moment and exploiting it. And so that is really how uh, most professional gamblers sort of look at horse racing. Now, obviously, every game has its own dynamics, and there are advantages to playing every hand if you have another type of edge. 
But in this case, that was their edge. And so watching them as opposed to the public who's there betting every race, doesn't have great information, influenced by a lot of other exogenous factors, it, it, you know, it just highlights the difference between a pro who's there to make money and someone else that uh, is there for either entertainment or for a lot of other reasons. And that's a whole different subject about why most people are there. Right. There is the track. There is the stock market. There is a lot of places. But right. yeah, so we can get into uh, the whole know yourself conversation if you want. But uh, so, yeah, so, you know, I mean, I guess that experience and, uh, um, you know, early career. So, I, you know, I had a formal education in uh in uh, business and econ, um, you know, studied business, uh, studied at Oxford, studied at London School of Economics. It was somewhat valuable. Um, <laughs> in terms of, in terms of, you know, understanding modern economic theory and things like that, and portfolio management, I guess was helpful. Um, if I had to trade the two experiences, my experience working was more valuable, but I probably don't get the entree without the formal education. Right. Without the um, credentialing. Yeah, yeah, it helps. Yeah. It has something to walk in the door with. Mm -hmm. But um, but yeah, so probably the most valuable early experience for me was I went to work for a hedge fund that was basically a, a, a long, short uh, strategy. Mostly equities did some arcane, arcane analysis and uh, in fixed income, but I would say mostly equities. And my boss is probably the smartest guy I've ever met in my life. To this day, in terms of just raw processing power, I don't think I've ever met someone smarter. And I saw the fund have a 90% drawdown in two years. And it was an astonishing experience. I mean, before I took the job, he said to me, Sorry, you're going to sit a, next to me. Explain a drawdown for the folks that uh, <laughs> wouldn't know what a drawdown was. I would speak with yeah. my heart in my shoes. <laughs> <laughs> so drawdown is basically if you have like an NAV calculation of where your fund sits at any point in time, you're basically, you know, X withdrawals of capital. So on a pure organic basis, experiencing a 90% loss, which is really hard to do, by the way. Right. Um, I don't know if, if you guys are old enough to remember a movie called Brewster's Millions with Richard Pryor trying to right. lose his money in order to yeah. have more. Right. Sort of like that. It's hard to lose 90% of your it takes, money. It takes effort. When you're not – yeah, I mean they, these were not instruments with embedded decay. These are like things that just have to go down because, you know, you made it, you made some bad judgment. But um, so so – sort of trying to you know understand how it was that someone who is that smart could have that kind of loss it really kind of hit me that this business is really largely about risk management right i mean he was the the ultimate irony is that almost every idea that he had was ultimately correct mm -hmm. um you know he had some macro ideas that he was trying to express with individual positions that and like i said the, the thesis was correct mm -hmm. um but, you know, terrible risk management and, uh, you know, an inability to, you know, kind of observe what was happening in the market. And, you know, again, we're probably bumping up against that know yourself conversation because, you know, uh, he brought a lot of biases and, 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 you know, flaws to the table that 
contributed to that incredible loss. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was amazing to see. It probably has saved or made me more money in my lifetime than any other experience that I've had. So he was right. Sitting next to the decision maker, I would learn a lot. Probably not in the way he had, he imagined, but um, it was invaluable. Wow. Roger, I see a consistent theme and thread with you. In, uh, <laughs> um, but it really uh, goes back to that self-awareness. Like you've been able to uh, take the position of an observer from an earlier age and um, that kind of epiphany or uh, insight is probably your most valuable gift. It's amazing. Um, I feel sometimes like I'm still awakening. <laughs> still learning. But, uh, yeah, that's that's good, right? We, we should never stop. Yeah, it's I a mean, hard thing to eliminate from your life, these uh, the biases that we bring. Yeah. Because they serve valuable purposes, right? I mean, mm -hmm. these things are valuable in some way. We're not completely irrational. We have these biases that are serving an alternate purpose. They're just preventing us from seeing things as they should be. So understanding that distinction is, I think, critical in being a good investor. And and I should say that, look, we, you know, for the most part, if, if anyone asks me for investment advice, I typically give them the same advice, which is, be a long-term investor, reduce transaction costs, uh, find someone who can guide you along the way and hold your hand when things get rocky and, and leave it alone. I mean, honestly, I truly believe that's how 90 plus percent of the population should behave. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I didn't enter the world like that. I developed some skills along the way. I paid a lot of tuition. Mm -hmm. So I think I've earned the right to sit at the discretionary table, but um, it wasn't easy. It, it, it takes a long time and it's not something that can be you know, learned from, you know, watching CNBC or whatever. Yeah, there's no shortcut through YouTube videos. There's no shortcut. And for the most part, I think most people don't really have the personality makeup to do anything other than be a long-term investor. And that in and of itself is difficult, extremely difficult, right? I mean, we just saw this recent 20 plus percent, you know, uh, uh, you know, correction in the market, which I'm certain a large part of the population stepped out did not step back in correctly mm -hmm. and now is trying to figure out what to do. And I know that's true because, you know, when we were down near the, near the lows, we saw what we almost always see at a low, which was extraordinary amount of selling. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the reason that we've recovered is because people are trying to claw their way back in um, and probably haven't gotten fully reinvested for the most part. So, that's going to happen along the way for long-term investors. So that game is hard enough. When you move into a short and intermediate trend game, it just gets so much harder. Yes. Yeah. The, the frequency, the noise, the amplitude of the noise is definitely compressed and exaggerated in shorter term. Yeah. So, and it's interesting because it really isn't about intelligence. It, it really is about how we see the world. I mean, I have, colleagues that are you know really look at the world through a political lens mm -hmm. so from their perspective you know where um where the administration sits on regulatory issues surrounding sectors is the prison that they'll see that whole sector through and and frequently it's wrong right i mean we've i don't know if you remember during the clinton years there was no sector under greater attack than healthcare. And 
there was a fear of being invested in managed care and pharmaceuticals. Managed care in particular, I don't, I don't know if there's ever been a sector that performed that well throughout the nineties. <laughs> and right. If you were just right. looking at headline risk, it would have kept you out of one of the most profitable trades in modern history. Mm-hmm. So even though people are smart and they understand the politics, they get, they get a little turned around in, in terms of, you know, causation correlation problems right if this happens then i'm sure this is going to happen right and the market tends not to always you know play things that way wait so so take us a little further into your career so after after uh hanging out brewster's millions yeah um, (laughs) where where did you go next i'm I'm curious about the point at which you started your first fund where you met the tomato farmer who's the best investor you've ever met yeah so yeah Good. Uh, so that that uh, that job out of graduate school was the one and only job that I've had. So I did a two year stint as an analyst for that fund. And I saw kind of saw the handwriting on the wall before the fund blew up and started making exit plans probably six months prior. And and, and to go back to kind of reinforce the point about, you know, personality, you know, biases is that there was so much dogma um, surrounding the way these investments were being made. Mm. And, and so I just, I just knew that this was going to end badly. Um, so I had a friend that had some institutional relationships in Asia and we were talking about co-managing some assets um, from uh, uh, an insurance fund in, uh, uh, in Tokyo. And that was really our seed money. Um, it, it, back then, there wasn't really this sort of, you know, highly institutionalized gatekeeping process like there is now. It was sort of like, all right, these guys seem smart. Let's give them a few million bucks and see what they do. And if they don't blow up, we'll give them more. And, and the world really was like that. I mean, there was, you know, probably a couple hundred hedge funds in the world. And, um, you know, so I guess we were lucky in that we didn't have to have a track record. My my partner had somewhat of a track record, but more really on uh, trading currencies and equities. Wait, is this the, is so, this the partner who became the monk? Yes, yes, this <laughs> is Yoshi Salasan. Yeah. So, and uh, yeah, we still we still keep up quite a bit today. And uh, but uh, but yeah, so we we managed money together and um, had a really good run. That was sort of the beginning of the asset management side, and built a couple side businesses around it, uh, brokerage and traditional asset management and then advising um, other institutional clients on alternative investments. So it's a good opportunity for us to kind of, you know, we capped our AUM after a while because we, we sort of understood that if we raised more money, our performance was going to suffer based mm-hmm. on the strategy that we were trying to deploy. It was one that couldn't run huge amounts of money, you know, enough that we could you know, do fine. Are you allowed to say how much it ran? Yeah, I felt like it was around a billion dollars. So we never got more than 800 million. Yeah, um, strategy dependent. Very, very. And um, but it then allowed us, you know, the opportunity to go back to those same institutions and say, well, we think we can help you, you know, understand other strategies. And uh, and, and and we did that. So we built a separate advisory business around that. And that's really that's really where it came from. So I. I left the fund. It, it, it immediately, you know, 
uh, blew up, as I said, and um, and we started building these other businesses. And I basically did that for you know 20 plus years, uh, and uh, sold my firm a few years ago, and now trying to figure out how to transition to running you know my own money and also looking at you know other investment classes as well. So moving into some private equity and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, and more specifically within private equity, even looking at, you know, some venture, right? You've, one of your venture deals has done fairly well. Yeah, yeah. My, I started being thing. advertised to it by it to, uh, on uh, uh, Facebook. One of you. Yeah, yeah. They've been, they've been, uh, they've been all over Facebook and... Uh, Molecule. Yeah, so this is Molecule. So Molecule is one of, one of our investments. And, uh, you know, I think because it wasn't clear the way this was going to go, um, I look at the, the group of investments now, and they're pretty ad hoc. There's, there's not really a broader strategy. It's sort of opportunistic on a case-by-case basis. But, you know, I'm still pretty happy with the portfolio for the most part. There have been some, some good investments and a few bad ones. But, uh, yeah, so that's really been the transition is getting away from the hour-to-hour, day-to-day to sort of, you know, broader perspective of, of the, the portfolio. That's great, Roger. I want to ask, how did you um, think or what processes you might use mentally to avoid adverse selection now in venture? It's a different problem. Completely different piece. Yeah. 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 And, I, and I'm sure when I, if I ever, if I, if this podcast stays and I hear what I'm about to say 10 years from now, I'm sure I'll think it's ridiculous but, <laughs> um, because I'm still learning. That means, but that means you've grown. Yeah. I hope so. I, I hope I do think it's ridiculous. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> right. Right. Uh, you know, I kind of start. So I, I should go backwards a little bit and talk a little bit about the process on the public side because you have to use the skills that you have, right? Right. So on the on the public side, you know, we basically have run long short strategies. A few, um, and most of them have been very fundamental with technical overlays. Um, you know, I started off in a fund that was, you know, we were almost doing like deep forensic accounting mm-hmm. and, and then and it, it's evolved into something that's quite different now. I mean, as I got in the latter part of my career is really very technical, a lot of pattern recognition stuff. So I've kind yeah. of mm-hmm. had a lot of, you know, evolution and process over the years, but kind of, I guess I've really kind of gone back to the early days of how I used to look at companies. So no differently um, than most traditional bottom-up fundamental investors trying to understand what the business is doing, how they're positioned, what their advantages are. Uh, you know, is is this uh, a business with uh, you know high barriers to entry? Um, does their business strategy is it consistent with with uh, a model of what I've seen succeed over time, right? I mean, you see, you, you get these success patterns that you've observed over time. So I, mm-hmm. I guess in some ways the common thread is you start to see re- repeating patterns, whether it's in price movement or successful businesses, you're always identifying mm-hmm. patterns to some extent. Mm-hmm. So when that plays out and it's clear that there's an advantage and pricing makes sense, then, you know, we'll invest. I mean, a, a perfect example is we've recently invested in a uh, CBD marijuana company that um, we think, you know, the the <clears throat> the basic inspiration for the investment is we think there's a significant uh, private public arbitrage, and um, and we think that we're buying a 
a rapidly growing company at a significant discount to the public price because part of it's because the public prices are are, are really highly valued right now. And that, that's what happens, you know, when a sector is growing, there's tons of organic growth and hurdles are coming down and there might not be a better organic growth story in the world than the CBD marijuana story right now. So I get why the public space is so richly valued. It, it does make some sense, uh-huh. right? But it's hard to invest responsibly in the public space unless you're really good at some of these micro companies that still haven't reached their potential. But we, you know, we saw an opportunity in the private space where we thought there was a significant discount to where the public is trading and also recognizing that this company is coming public fairly soon. So mm-hmm. we could eliminate, you know, a liquidity risk. Mm-hmm. And so we made an investment there. So, again, it's a little bit of pattern recognition, understanding valuations and things like that. So I, I hear you say some of that, but I don't really kind of still hear your basic thesis for what drives your investment today. Yeah, so are we talking about public or private? Private, sorry. Private. private. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you know, I, I think it really does come down to trying to determine businesses that have advantages. And, and I guess I can't, I can't get away from that because that's, to me, the engine for everything. It's, you know, I mean, if you want to put it in, in terms of alpha, okay, we can talk about alpha versus beta. Uh, skill, you know, uh, is another good word. So these things are all ways to determine, you know, where is the edge coming from? What's the, what's the, you know, what's the, the, the source? What's the engine source here? Right. So, you know, whether it's public or private, that's really what you're trying to figure out. Now, once you get further along into things like, you know, trading and pattern recognition, obviously that's quite different. But um, as far as picking companies, you know, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I, I think it's, it's hard to find good companies, but it's simple to spot them when you see them. Right. So I guess, <laughs> right. right. So you can look at like a thousand things and just be completely uninterested. But when the one comes across your desk that, you know, you should be looking at, um, it's not that difficult, right? One of the things I tried explaining to somebody yesterday literally was, um, they said, how do you know when you see a good med device company? And I said, they, they speak the same language as us. And I said, what do you mean? I said, well, if we don't speak the same language, then there's either something they know that I don't, or there's something I know that they don't. So we're not in the right, right. place. Like right. we have to agree on where the, the space they're in is going. Right, right. Like again, like to... Another example of one of our investments that you mentioned, Molecule. I mean, if you look at the edge of Molecule over traditional air filtration devices, so if anyone is interested, Molecule is a, a clean air filtration device. It's the world's only you know, FDA-approved air filtration device, but it's not actually filtering air. It's converting toxic particles into benign particles. So it's a complete game changer um, as far as the science goes. Um, so. We see this IP, we see the edge, we think that management understands this in a way that most people don't. They have a strong science background and strong management background. And so that's the kind of thing that's appealing. So we're constantly looking for these, you know, protected high barrier um, businesses and technologies at, at a good price. And, you know, so for us earlier tends to be better because you're, you might be taking on more risk, but we like the pricing advantage you can make more mistakes um and still come out okay if you uh 
you know, sort of. I like the way you describe that. Actually, I never, um, just, I've never described it that way. Going in earlier allows you to make allows the, the risk. Yeah, makes I, it I look at the average market cap of some of these companies we're investing in, and I look at what's happening in the private space now, where all the valuation's been taken out of the market before it comes public. I mean, I look at you know Uber, Lyft, etc. Better be a pretty strong believer. If you're uh, if you're buying a 50 billion or 100 billion, because there's there's not a, there's not a lot of room to grow unless you want to compound it 11 percent. I mean, I, I'm struggling to understand what's happening in that space right now. You, you and everybody else who's rational. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, you know, I I, I keep hearing this sort of uh, comparison to Amazon, and, and it's easy to pick the winner and say, you know, Amazon's a trillion dollar company. So and it was given, you know, the market allowed it to, you know, to lose tons of money, finance it at incredibly low cost and, uh, and succeed. But, you know, look, there's one Amazon, right? This is not a model of doing business. <laughs> this is not how venture companies should be thinking about the world. It's not scalable for sure. Right. 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 You can't multiply you know, that. Model. We'll not see another Amazon in our lifetime, I don't think. Maybe maybe we will. But no, it's interesting. I was talking to one or two. That's 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 an okay discussion. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It's a once in a forty year occurrence or fifty year occurrence. Yeah, I actually. think so. I think so. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Um, Roger, take me through, you know, know, we heard a little bit about obviously how you looked at the world through your career and all of that as well. But, you know, I I still feel like we didn't get to the meat of how you look at psychology um, and, you know, how you evaluate, um, I don't know, everything from what the market's thinking to, um, um, you know, inciting a great debate at dinner over uh, who should be in, in office. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I guess, um, it's interesting because, uh, you know, my, uh, well, go ahead. Let go me ahead. just, pre- yeah, let me preface that one, one, one more way. One of the things I've appreciated greatly about you. One of the things I, I, I love about Chris is just, I, I feel like you're actually free thinkers. You're not being constrained by too many things comparatively to everybody else. Yeah. And so I recognize that and I, I feel lucky to have these conversations, but I want to share some of that. I, I feel like we went through a little of your bio, but um, take, take you know, our audience in, if you will, and help them understand a little bit about, you know, what it is you do to, to have that edge, as you might call it, um, or to, to have that clarity, as I might call it. Yeah, so I mean... I, I think you're, the first part of the question is more interesting than the second part. <laughs> so I'll just briefly touch on the second part to get past that, which is if you are a discretionary trader, you know you obviously have to have a defensible strategy that's going to work in all kinds of conditions in which you have some kind of advantage that you can demonstrate to somebody. Uh, you know, through performance, right? So that can be a million things, by the way. We don't need to get into every one of those strategies. Um, But I think the more interesting question is that there are a number of funds that will deploy a strategy like that that will still not succeed. And the reason they don't succeed, I think, is at the root of the question you're asking, which is, you know, how to what extent does our objectivity or lack of objectivity get in the way of good decision making? 
And so this is kind of like a, almost a daily conversation around the house and probably pretty annoying to be around. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure my wife would appreciate or, or hold it in as high a regard as you do. But um, I, I do, I truly value um, people that are able to be radically objective about the world, right? So, I mean, for the most part, if you meet somebody and they share one or two political views with you, you can make a pretty good speculation as to where they sit and how they're going to land on the next five or six issues. And, and that creates lots of problems in decision-making because now you've got this prism that you're looking at the world through. And if things don't fit into your prism, then you're rejecting that information. So you can see how that can be a problem in investing, right? You've got this worldview and you need things to fit into that worldview. And you get these data points that are inconsistent with that worldview and you start to reject them or rationalize something around them to make them feel better. And so I think this is a big problem. I think it's a problem in investing. I think it's a problem in a lot of areas. So I, this idea of being radically objective, being able to hold ideas that seem to be fairly disparate, but as you look a little deeper, they're both just true, right? They're, they're just, right. I'm just interested in the truth. That's really it. So I think that's what um, really uh, good investors are able to do, admit mistakes, see when they're wrong, see how their bias played a role in something that was a bad decision, get to that point really, really fast. As uh, you mentioned, the tomato farmer, we can talk about the tomato farmer for a second. Uh, so I have I've been a, wanting to meet him. Yeah, so the tomato farmer is, in my view, the best trader in the world. And 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 I, I'm hoping I, to meet him one day. By the way, I yeah. Well, he's getting old. We got to get to that fast. But um, mm-hmm. he uh, he's in his late 70s, early 80s now. Had a couple of heart attacks. We still talk probably once a month. And um, he's the one that said he said to me one day. He said, you know, Roger, when your biggest short becomes your biggest long or vice versa, you're there. So what, well, what do you mean I'm there? He said, I said, mm-hmm. he said then you are, you're playing the game the way it's supposed to be played. The game is that it's not about yourself, right? This is not about your ego. It's not about being right. It is completely about the objective truth. And so you should be able to flip the switch and make your biggest short your biggest long if the evidence supports that decision. And that's true in life, right? You should be able to be dissuaded from a point of view if the evidence is compelling. And it doesn't matter how sensitive that subject is. It can be about... I, I want to point out that I'm not sure I've changed your mind on anything ever yet, by the way. Well, then you're going to have to work on the reason. <laughs> you got to bring it. You're not bringing it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you bring, you bring me some pretty, uh, some pretty tough subjects. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and then, and then there are a lot of other things, too, right? You get a lot of, you know, good second-level and third-level thinking, understanding not just what the consequences are, but then what the consequences of the consequences are. So that kind of plays out in markets all the time. Chris, you see it all the time. That's the whole buy the rumor, sell the fact thing. Well, sometimes, yes. sometimes actually – it actually works to buy the rumor. At, I mean, I'm sorry, to, yeah. to not buy the rumor because the market's now onto a third level of thinking. So, so yeah. it's being aware of, 
of of that being aware of you know again what your thinking is how how you approach markets um it takes a lot of a lot of uh you know self self-awareness a ton of self-awareness roger i want to say uh one of the things i've appreciated about this whole conversation i've just let you talk i've been eagerly listening but it's uh fascinating to me that uh what you're avoiding any labels right it's a, a, a very refreshing thing um and it shows you're even in this conversation thinking at a second level i hate labels but you know sometimes i'll adopt them for uh comedic purposes right the, right in 1999 um, and 2000, when James, Jim Cramer was banging the table to buy Cisco at 186 times earnings, he said, the troglodyte value managers don't get this. <laughs> I said, I'm, a, I'm a caveman. I'm a, I'm a troglodyte value manager. But, um, right, but you know, to, I, to my earlier point, that same Jim Cramer was early on subprime. Right, so right, I, I won't right, even put Jim right. Cramer in a box. He's not in a box. Correct. As as I'm concerned. Correct. I'm, I'm correct. I'm, I'm looking for the truth from him, just as well as I'm aware that you know he could be dead wrong. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm with you. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and, and in avoiding labels, you're really still looking through to what really matters. Uh, the truth doesn't have a label. Right. It just is. Exactly. You don't think about that in, in well, I guess in, in market and response times that you're looking at, you know, e either the truth works or it doesn't, but you don't think about that in spectrums to some degree? Well, yeah, I mean, it, I guess when you're thinking about markets, right, the word truth can become really fuzzy, right? I mean, I don't know <clears> uh, if if you've read any of Soros' theory of reflexivity. It's It's basically... <laughs> I have not. Okay, so Chris, you're probably aware of it. It's it's basically yeah. the idea that, um, you know, how the market perceives something can become a reality for a period of time, and, and maybe for a sustained period of time, right? Mm -hmm. So, is it really the truth that you're looking for, or is it the market's truth, right? I mean, that same subprime paper that was floating around in 05 and 06 that was worth. 99 and 100, <laughs> uh, you know, that's the same paper that they traded it, you know, <laughs> exactly, you know, right, two years right. later. So which truth right. are we looking at? It was the same credit profile, same set of risks, right? Everything was the same. So when we look at investments, um, and this is a tough conversation because I've jumped around a lot. We talked about a little bit of politics and you know, ideology and things like that. And, and markets do have their own set of rules that you have to play by. I mean, the game is to, is, you know, at least as a trader, the game is to, to win money in the short and intermediate term. So, it, you know, I, I'm interested in the truth, but I'm also interested in what the market thinks the truth is. And in the short term, all that really matters is what the market thinks the truth is. So, you know, I think I said to you one time, um, you know, when you're in a market with a group of participants, it's sometimes, not sometimes, let me say it's almost all the time, in the short term, more inter interesting to know what everyone else thinks the truth is than what the actual truth is. Right. So What's the narrative? That's how, right. right. That's, that's how valuations get established. And once you understand that, then you can look at, you know, where things really ought to be, right? 
And if there's a giant dislocation, then there's an opportunity. We, like I said, we just saw that recently, right? This sell-off was a recession, fear-driven sell-off, which was augmented by probably a lack of liquidity, uh, some algorithmic trading, and a few other things. But the, the spark was, you know, recession fears, and the Fed was behind. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, now we're getting into what the real truth is, right? We just had this big print, first quarter GDP print, high productivity number, things look much better than the market, you know, thought it was, you know, we'll see how second half of the year plays out. But um, so the, the mar market's now trying to reconcile that, you know, mistake it made effectively. Um, so, you know, we'll see. We'll see how the second half plays out. Well, I think we're kind of actually in a, in a in a very tough period in terms of a lot of cross currents. But uh, yeah, um, yeah, we're seeing uh, microchip inventories bulging again, which yeah, yeah, uh, is a little warning. Yeah. I think this period is going to. When I say this period, I mean maybe from this day forward, um, my game is going to be in some ways a lot harder, and maybe in a few ways easier, in that. I think that a lot of, um, you know, rules-based trading and algorithmic trading in some ways pushes markets further for longer than it might have. Oh, absolutely um, pro-cyclical, right? Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, it increases that amplitude for right, sure, both right, directions. Right, I think, that's, that. I think that's true. Um, because yeah. at the core of a lot of the, the rules following is also a certain amount of uh, trend following. Um, so anyhow, I think that that is going to present some opportunities, you know, but it will also make yeah. the game more difficult. Yeah. I think I do a terrible job of answering your questions. I kind of start off answering hey, them and then you I know, this is, I this is most of our, this is most <laughs> of our life. I'm seeking way more clarity than you. But I'm I'm hearing the answers. So yeah, someone is. Someone is. <laughs> they're landing over here. Yeah, yeah. Um, Chris, I wonder what questions we you have for Roger that um, just in general before we wrap up here. Um, well, I I want to ask uh, Roger, are you there? Has your long your your greatest short ever become your 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 long, or vice versa? Well, if that's the measure of being there, then yes, but I still don't think I'm there. So, right, I, right? <laughs> I, I definitely well, you, have, yeah, flip the switch. You've reached where, that yeah, 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 I'm, I'm, clo I'm much closer, uh, I think. <laughs> I guess that's a question that should be answered in hindsight. Um, but yeah, I still see, I still see, uh, you know, uh, some flaws and biases that I bring at times, and you know, I'm not completely a robot yet again my wife might argue with <laughs> come on honey a little emotion once in a while would be good uh, kind of thing. but uh uh yeah i mean i see it right because i'm looking for it i'm constantly looking for it when i make mistakes i look back and say look sometimes sometimes mistakes are not mistakes they're things that you're supposed to be doing with a bad outcome right i mean that happens all right. the time in life there's you can't control all outcomes. You just do what you're supposed to do. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, there are so many other exogenous things going on 
that are constantly, you know, bombarding your life, there's no way it's not going to influence how you look at things or evaluate things. And so, yeah, yeah, I guess uh, not full cyborg yet. <laughs> you, you know, and, and we can work on that when I'm with you Good. next week, Roger. Good. Yeah. <laughs> bring, bring, bring me some interesting medical devices. <laughs> uh, so uh, I'm hoping for a, a few rapid fire predictions from you. Um, oh, oh boy. Okay. <laughs> you, we, you can preface this by I have no idea. Yeah, there's a lot uh, of that. But okay. Okay. Um, Uber will it actually be a once in a forty year company? You know, five years from now, or will it have? Uh, you know, well, it's already a once in a 40 year company, and that's probably the biggest loss sustaining financed uh, company with a hundred billion dollar <laughs> enterprise value. So it's already achieved that goal. But um, <laughs> if, if you're asking me if it's, uh, you know, I've got to pick between other ride sharing. So I, I guess the smartest bet would be no, it won't be uh, uh, once in a lifetime. That's always, yeah, that's just going to be no. Anytime you ask me something that once in a lifetime, I'm just going to say no. Um, <laughs> right. Very uh, low probability. Let, you know, let, let's, talk, let's talk about your wife yeah. next then. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I think, I think that's, uh, I think it's, you know, that, that game has really changed pretty significantly, right? Because we're supposed to be bringing these companies and letting investors sort of benefit from the risk they're taking in the public space. And now we're getting the inverse of that. So I don't think that's going to work. I, it might work. Yes, I don't think I don't think it'll work very long term either. Yeah, I think that's going to be tough. But but SoftBank is not going to eat that but, that profit for very long. Right, some version of it probably sustains. Um, you know, joint venturing with you know the traditional you know automotive manufacturers and, or, or or some other financing getting involved might work. But in its current form, I don't really understand it. You you know at, at at our fund, we've taken to um, making fun of Tesla uh, and Tesla stock a little bit. So, any color commentary on on whether you think it'll actually go bankrupt? Ooh, wow! Uh, you know the bonds. <laughs> the bonds were kind of acting like it a little while ago, but that ship yeah. has been righted a little bit. Um, and they obviously just Hello. got this last round of financing. Did we lose him? Uh, that's, that's another tough one. I know some really smart guys that are long Tesla and some really smart guys that are short Tesla. I'm not involved in Tesla, so I don't really have a view. Yeah, you've got to make your prediction anyway. That, that's part of the fun for me here. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Please don't, don't If you're asking me if Tesla survives, it absolutely survives. If you're asking me if the stock is a good investment, um, I would say you will get an equal rate of return in a number of other vehicles with less risk and volatility. Yeah. So do you think it'll go bankrupt in the next five years? No. Okay. I would say maybe uh, not bankrupt, but I think the productive assets will be under different ownership. There you go. That was my no. <laughs> you got I agree with you, Chris. I'm going to let the technicality win, win on that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My, my wife works for Microsoft. Um, is her stock going to continue to go up? Oh, my God. These are... Uh, what's my time frame? Uh, said it. You said it. Like over the next year, is she going to continue to do well? Over the next two years, so, is she going to continue to do all these stock grants she gets? Here's, here's, here's. Neil, you have to pay for this advice. This is going into personal. I, I, I am. I, I've paid through lots of hours. <laughs> well, this is all love now that I should be getting. Well, first of all, Chris, 
you don't give this advice. You don't sit down with clients and tell them whether Microsoft is going up or down. I'm pretty certain of that. Um, well, hold on, hold on. We can ask Chris at the not. end of this too. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so here's what I would say. What I would say is that I think we're in a pretty big bull market, and you know, there's been some debate about when that bull market, you know, ended because we've had a couple of almost, you know, we've had two 20% corrections, maybe not in the indices, but certainly in the average stock, right? Mm -hmm. In the 15, 16, uh, you know, period, we were pretty close to 20%. We just got another 20, you know, yeah. back in December. Um, and, so, and also, this latest all-time high is only 13 stocks driving the S&P, actually. Right, right. So, so, so I think we're under in... Under the hood, it's still... Yeah, yeah. So I think we're in a pretty big bull market that's subject to some, you know, pretty serious corrections. So I think that's going to persist because the wipeout of 08 was enormous. And so, you know, risk assets have not returned to that level of investment. And I don't think they will for a little while yet. You know, there's still a lot of... Do you don't think a correction's coming this summer? That's not what I'm saying. I don't know if a correction is coming this summer or not. I think it's possible. It's probably not a bad bet. Um, but what I'm saying is I think that we're in a pretty big bull market that can have 15 and 20% corrections in it. But I think that trying to outsmart this market is going to be very difficult. I think that uh, being passively invested uh, or with an active manager that recognizes that you know, what we're experiencing right now is the globe trying to get reinvested in risk assets? Uh, that could take a you know a little more time. So, uh, and that's if that's true, there's no way Microsoft is going to perform badly, right? It, it's going to go along certainly with the S and P and probably with the, the higher vol, you know, components of the market. Um, software has been you know ridiculous. So, so yeah, I think Microsoft is going to be fine. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen this year, um, but I think uh, I think for the most part equities are okay for a while. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, ten percent correction can happen at any moment. Wouldn't shock me in the least. Yeah, and I think too, um, from a psychological standpoint, Roger, there's support for that that view. The world, um, rightly or wrongly, desperately needs uh, risk assets. Yeah. Pensions are underfunded. Yeah. They're reallocating yeah. uh, more to private equity at a time. I don't know if that's right. The public market seems to offer some better pricing. But anyway, that's happening. People yeah, uh, around agree. the globe are trying to I mean, one of the things that's catch up. kind of hard to understand, but really, really important, is the extent to which an asset class is over or under owned. I mean, I, I can't, I mean, that's probably is the most important thing to try to understand about where you are in a cycle. And it's not an easy thing to really understand. I mean, sentiment to some extent will give you some sense of it. Certainly looking inside of portfolios on an aggregate basis gives you an idea. But, you know, if you do nothing more than the extent to which an asset class was, uh, you know, how big it was in a portfolio, not a portfolio, but we're talking about you know, groups of portfolios, a big aggregate number, you can make a pretty good judgment about what the opportunity set is for that asset class in the future. Perfect example. Uh, look what happened to um, bank stocks 
you know, after the after the crisis. Right. Uh, so I, I still don't think bank stocks are anywhere near where they were, you know, in, in terms of representation of the S&P um, mm-hmm. prior crisis. I think they went down to something like five or six percent of the S&P. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think on balance, they should be closer to 20. I'm not sure where they are today, but that's a good thing to know if that's the sector that you're interested in. So, and conversely, when things get, you know, you know, swell up and get, uh, you know, become a high component, then you have to start thinking, okay, so the opportunity set probably diminishes from here. So that mm-hmm. idea, I think, is essential. And I will say, I will make one prediction, is that I think that investors have really uh, uh, are not appreciating the risks in fixed income. I think that might be uh, the biggest problem the markets will experience in the next, you know, three, five, ten years. This idea that somehow so inflation is gone, should, yeah, right, yeah, exactly. Right, interest rates are currently moderated. That's a problem, right? And now we get these high productivity numbers. I can see all the economists saying now we've got even higher productivity. So, you know, what are we worried about here? We've got theories like MMT floating around. I don't know if, you know, if the right. investors or right. your, your listeners are aware of what that is, but um, it's basically a deficit it's, spending, you know, uh, yeah. economic It's model. a quantitative it's, easing for the public. Yeah, yeah. For public projects. Right, right. If you're the if you're the authority of your own central bank, you can't go broke, right? Well, it, it, yeah. okay. So you can see how all these things are problematic for fixed income because, you know, right. We've basically had a bull market in bonds for, I don't know, 40 years, something like that. Yeah, 1982, from 1982 on. Okay, so that's a problem. That's a problem because you become inured to the risks. And I'm convinced that people are reaching for fixed income and um, it's, going to, it's going to be a problem at some point. We have not repealed the laws of, uh, of cycles and inflation will come back. Yeah, I um, especially on that note, um, look at the ETFs that are created out of bank loans, Yeah, you know, leveraged yeah. loan funds yes. and things like that. Yep. And, and those those trade maybe once a month by appointment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they're not liquid instruments, but they're put into these ETFs. There are some structural issues even in fixed income Yeah, I mean, where e- the market e- could snap. Even, even you know, theoretically super liquid stuff that's supposed to trade like cash, you know, money market stuff. Mm-hmm. If you look deep inside some of that, uh, you'll find some fixed income that you'll, you know, will surprise you. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, mm-hmm. you know, I, that, that probably is a prediction that I'm the most comfortable with because I know I'm going to be right. Um, I'm not sure <laughs> the time frame, but I would say right. that I, I would sit down with a financial advisor and say, this is the one risk that people aren't prepared for. This is the one thing that can really hurt the portfolio. So what do I do about it? And I won't give you that advice. That I'll leave that to Chris. But um, I think it's that's a, good, that's a really good conversation that people should be having with their financial advisors. Yeah. yeah. Roger, two more quick questions. Uh, most interesting book you read recently? Oh, wow. Um, I just finished that. The... Uh, the bad blood book, which wasn't so much interesting as oh. it was a page turner, right? I started and I couldn't put it down. But um, now the title of the most interesting book I read is kind of blanking because I'm over 50 now and I'm forgetting stuff like that. But it's, <laughs> the author is a, a, a New York Times writer 
uh, oh, it's called Barbarian Days. That's what it is. Mm. And it's a, a book about a guy who grew up surfing, and um, and he's a beautiful writer, and he writes about something that I love, and uh, it's uh, it's just an incredible story. It really talks a lot about how much the world has changed, how much risk we used to take on as kids and don't anymore, and the extent to mm -hmm. which that shapes your thinking and your life. And, uh, yeah, yeah it's, I think it's interesting, especially as a father of two, I almost wonder sometimes if we aren't removing too many obstacles and risk from their lives and how that's going to shape your, their Your kid's a freediver. Yeah. I don't know what the hell you're yeah. talking about. Your kid's well, a I've forced him to be an exception, but, um, uh, you know, I think there's some, that's, that's kind of an interesting, uh, you know, thing to be thinking about. So I would say, you know, Barbarian yeah. Days was very interesting. That's great. Yeah, Roger, I'm uh, rereading uh, Against the Gods, the Peter Bernstein book. Yeah, it's just on my shelf. It's a great read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> I'm thinking a lot about risks these days and where they're embedded, because I do believe your concern is true. You know, when the risks are reduced, removed, spread, the behavior changes. And, and you know, and this is maybe the, not for the better necessarily. Right. And this is the first time that, you know, we keep talking about, you know, global synchronicity when all these markets start to sync up. Well, when that happens and, you know, the globe is clicking along at, you know, you know, emerging markets north of six and seven and developed world north of two, three, what does that You've got mean a for the rest China, of the world? Yeah, you know, we can take China out of the equation. We're still getting right. big numbers. Still getting yeah. growth. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right. So I, I think it's interesting to think about what that means as an investor um, mm -hmm. for the next, you know, mm -hmm. for the next decade. You, right? you, all right. You, the, the conversation you love to, to get everybody excited about at dinner. Um, do you think Trump will be reelected? <laughs> so <laughs> bring it to you. So I think there's a. a, a a reasonably good chance of that. And I think it's largely because, you know, unless we really go into a pretty solid recession, I think that most people have accepted the fact that we are now in a three plus world, right, for the economy. And uh, we bought some of that definitely with, uh, with the tax cuts, but I think there has been greater capital investment. So I think the idea that you've got an administration that's, I hate to say business friendly because Trump really does some idiotic things as far as, uh, uh, his business. Well, well, his <laughs> business and picking out individual companies that he wants to, to pick on and, and, and sectors. But, but I think broadly speaking, I think that, uh, the administration is, is, is somewhat business friendly. Um, I think people will vote their pocketbook. I think if things are sort of where they are now, it's, he's going to be very tough to beat. Um, and I honestly don't see a, a Democratic candidate that I think is going to really win the hearts and minds of, uh, of voters. So I think he's going to be tough to beat. So I'm going to say, uh, can I say contingent upon the economy? The economy is... Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 There, wasn't, there wasn't any you okay. know, boundary here for so you. I would say if we have not gone into a recession, uh, yeah, he gets reelected. No boundary, contingent upon uh, winning the electoral college. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you know, Roger, we I really appreciate you joining us for the podcast this morning and just sharing a little well, bit of you your, guys. a little glimpse into your world. I feel like I rambled and, a little uh, too much, but um, that's kind of the way my brain works. It, <laughs> Roger, it was great. Thank you. Really. 
It's been a pleasure. Thank you for that. Thank you, guys. 